A lot of great sermons about believers preaching to unbelievers, hoping they will move from unbelief to belief. This is the sermon that the unbelievers want to preach to the believers. So on their behalf, I have shown up and asked you to notice what Jesus says here in in Luke chapter 6. And let me remind you where we are. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Plain, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so a few weeks ago, Dr. Jeremy Kimball was here and kind of took us through one of the hardest commands that Christ has given, and that is that we love our enemies. Who does that? The only people that love their enemies are people that see the world upside down. Because the world would tell us you're supposed to eliminate your enemies. Last week as we showed up to worship Christ on Easter, halfway around the world, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ were attacked by Islamic terrorists that strapped explosives to themselves and came into that worship service and detonated those explosives, killing about 300 people. Why? simply because they don't see what we see. They don't love who we love. They don't think like we think because Christians think upside down. We serve a savior who has spoken to us and our allegiance is to him. It may surprise you, but what happened last weekend was not out of the ordinary. The Hudson Institute, tells us that every month about 345 Christians are killed for faith-based reasons. 105 churches every month are attacked or burned. And globally, one out of every nine Christians is experiencing persecution. For us, the closest thing we'll get to persecution probably is some sneers and some some comments that are unflattering to us, but our brothers and sisters around the Christ are paying a price for what they believe, for following Jesus. So the question is, how do we respond in a world that hates us? How do we speak to a world that doesn't see what we see? And that's what Jesus is going to teach us here. There's two errors that we can make in responding to the sins and the hates of others. Number one, we can isolate ourselves in fear. We can just board up our windows and lock ourselves in the basement, huddle in our little churches and refuse to engage. Listen, that's not loving, that's fearing. The second mistake we make is to hate, attack, judge, and condemn those that attack us. That's not loving either. So how do we strike the balance of holding strong conviction without compromise, all the while we are exercising compassion? That's what Jesus is addressing in the second half of the Sermon on the Plain. And so let me read to you, beginning in verse 37, it says this, judge not, and you will not be judged. I think that's the favorite Bible verse of unbelievers. Have you noticed that? That's like the one sin left in the world. The only thing that you can't do in the world is judge someone to be a sinner. 
That's off limits. That's a sin. That's the only remaining sin. And they oftentimes will quote Jesus as they're trying to, this is the sermon that the unbelievers want to preach to the believers. And they're not asking any more than what Jesus is asking. Jesus says, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be used, it will be measured back to you. We're going to learn three things this morning. Here's the first thing. Pardoned criminals can't be judges. You are not allowed to play the role of judge, jury, and executioner in a person's life. Jesus says, judge not. Now, it might surprise you, but do you know that the Bible actually tells us that exercising good judgment is a virtue? I mean, you're supposed to be a person with good judgment. And we need to embrace what it means to exercise good judgment. You showed good judgment this morning by coming to church rather than staying in bed. You had to make good judgment when you were picking out your clothes this morning. Some of you didn't exercise very good judgment, I see, but um, you did the best that you could with what you had and you showed up. And so uh, we, we exercise judgment all the time. We either have good judgment or bad judgment. And so Jesus is not saying we shouldn't have good judgment. What is he saying? He's telling us that to judge with an attitude of superiority, to have a critical, fault-finding, self-righteous attitude toward those that don't see what we see is off limits. You are not allowed to play the role of judge because that position is already occupied. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, the Apostle Paul asks a question. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The truth is there is a judge, there will be a judgment, but that is not my job and it's not your job either. Jesus is the only final judge. He will render the final verdict. We read about that in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. It says, he commanded us to preach. Now, do you hear what he's saying? There is a way to preach without judgment. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he has appointed one to be judge of the living and the dead. And that is Jesus. One day Jesus is coming back and when he does, he is going to judge the living and the dead. My job, if I love you, is to tell you Jesus is your judge and we will all stand before him. And we already know the way that he's going to render his judgment. Those who are in Christ will be found righteous. Those outside of Christ will be found unrighteous and forever be separated in eternal hell apart from God. And so if I love you, I must tell you, judgment is coming. There's a way to preach without being judgmental. 
Believing and speaking the Bible doesn't make us judgmental. But listen, believing others should obey the Bible while we excuse ourselves does. And that's what Jesus is forbidding. There is a posture of pardoned people. We understand that because the eternal judge has declared us guilty criminals in the courtroom of God to be legally pardoned of every crime, that produces a humility in us. That produces a motivation to worship and to love and point people to the one that we love. And so we don't use a different measuring rod to measure others than we use on ourselves. Isn't that what we do? We see the sins in other people's lives and like, that's a great big sin. Same sin in our lives. Oh, that's a itty bitty little sin. It's not a big deal. And that is what Jesus is talking about. He mentions this measuring rod. So we don't assign a motive to the actions of people. What we do is we look for the sin behind the sin. We look for the hurt behind the hurt. And often there's, there's years and layers of wrong programming and wrong thinking that has led to the way that people treat us. They don't see what we see. They don't think like we think. We shouldn't expect unbelievers to behave like believers. They haven't seen God's holiness. They haven't seen their sinfulness. They're like we were before Christ opened our eyes until we were pardoned. And so the greatest thing we can do to prevent being judgmental is this, is never to forget how much we have been forgiven. We understand that we have been pardoned of our crimes and we can't exercise judgment on someone else. He tells us these two negative commands. He says, judge not and condemn not, but then he gives us these two positive commands. Here they are, forgive and give. Let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. Before we talk about what it is, let's talk about what it's not. Forgiveness is not approving of someone's sinful behavior. It's not enabling them to continue to sin. Forgiveness is not letting someone else off the hook for what they did to you. It's taking them off of your hook and understanding they're still on God's hook. And one day he will judge. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily guarantee reconciliation with the person who's hurt you. It doesn't mean that trust is rebuilt. It takes two people to forgive. I'm sorry, it takes two people to reconcile. One to forgive and one to repent. If you have both, now there can be reconciliation. But without either, there can't be reconciliation. So what is forgiving? Very simply, forgiving is canceling the debt that you think someone owes you. It's refusing to demand someone to pay for the damage that they've caused in your life. Are you forgiving? There's a way to test your forgiveness and that's the second positive command. It's not forgiving, it's giving. Do you see it there in verse 38? He says, give and it will be given to you. Giving makes your forgiveness tangible. 
Forgiving requires you to close the gap in the relationship. Giving pays the price to demonstrate your forgiveness. You say, what do I give them? You give people grace. You give people time, recognizing they're they're an unfinished project. God hasn't finished with them yet. You give people yourself, your emotion and your heart and your intellect. You give them the gospel. Another thing that you can give people that don't understand us is you can give them a church. This church is a gift to the community of Michiana. And when you invest in this church and you serve this church and we lock arms together on mission, what we're doing is we're saying, we love you so much. We want you to see what we see. We want you to, to, to know what we know. We want you to know the love of Christ. And we want you to know ultimately that there is a way to be pardoned for every crime. This is the way that we give and this is the way that we love. Now, before we continue, I just wanna make this practical. Did someone's name come to mind when I mentioned forgiving someone of a hurt? Got a name? Did that just kind of spontaneously pop into your mind? You see a face? Maybe it's a group. How did that get there if Pastor Trent didn't say the name? The Holy Spirit must be speaking to you. And he must know that there is something that you're doing or thinking, an attitude that you have, an attitude of judgment that needs to be replaced with an attitude of forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? Pardoned criminals can't be judges. Secondly, blind people can't be leaders. Look here at uh, verse 39. He says, also to them in a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Now, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is not supplied, but I'm looking at you, and I don't think you're smart enough to figure out what the answer is. Can you say the answer? I'm going to read the question. You supply the answer. You ready for this? Can a blind man lead a blind man? No. Good, good. You you passed church today. Way to go. Now, he, he asked a second question. Let's see if you're smart enough to figure this one out. It's a rhetorical question. You ready for this? Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes, they will. Great. You got 100% on the the answer uh, on the test today in church. What is he trying to tell us? He's telling us blind people should not be at the front of the pack. And he goes on in verse 40 and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, listen, I I, I don't want to disparage you if you're visually impaired. Maybe there's somebody here that actually is blind. And uh, there's a lot of ways that you can lead us. You can lead us by your example of humility and courage and perseverance and, and ingenuity. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can lead. But listen, you are not getting the keys to my car if you can't see the road, okay? My kids, are their lives are at stake and other people's lives are at stake, okay? Um, blind people need help. Now, do you know the way... That, that Christians generally treat spiritually blind people? We judge them. We condemn them. But what would you do physically if you were out in the, the parking lot and you saw a blind person about to step into oncoming traffic? How would you treat them? You would treat them with compassion. You would go over, you'd put your arm around them gently. It's like, can I help you? Because I think it's safer over here, right? 
And yet Jesus is telling us that spiritually blind people need the same compassion. You don't scold a blind person for walking into a pole. You help them avoid the pole. And you say, if you'll stay with me, I can help you get to a better place. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And so Jesus wants us to understand that when we see what we see, it's a, it's a grace that God gives us to lift our eyes. One of my favorite Tim Hawkins jokes has to do with the time that he was riding in the car with his wife. He was in the passenger seat and his wife was driving. And she kind of veered off the road a little bit and she hit one of those rumble strips on the, the shoulder of the road. And she was complaining because the car was just shaking like that and she thought the road, road was messed up. And Tim Hawkins explained to her, it's like, no, honey, they put those there as a signal. When you feel the vibration, it's a signal that you need to get back in your lane. And his wife said, that's awesome for blind people. <laughs> blind people shouldn't be behind the wheel. It's not for blind people. So what we can provide is some guidance for people that have yet to see what we see. And everybody has a worldview. Do you understand what I mean when I say a worldview? Leaders especially. Jesus mentions leadership here. It's like everybody wants to be at the front of the pack. Everybody wants to be the one to be the thought leader. People want you to follow them. They want you to think the way that they think. Presidential candidates and, and uh, teachers and, and people in your family, they want you to put them at the front of the pack. Every leader has vision. Unfortunately, not every leader has the vision to see Jesus' worldview. And Jesus is telling us, if you are not compassionate, if you are not forgiving, if you're not giving, if you're not merciful, you are obviously not following Jesus as your leader. When you are following Jesus as your leader, he says you're a disciple that's going to go where Jesus goes and act like Jesus acts and have a proper attitude like Jesus has. Now, for, for Christians, the worldview that we adopt is the revelation that God has put in his word. And so we see the world through the lens of what God has disclosed about his will and his ways that's recorded for us in the Bible. And so not everybody can see this. Only those that have had their eyes opened, but some people are spiritually blind. How do you treat people who don't see what you see? We don't condemn them, we don't judge them, we forgive and give. That's the message of scripture. I, I couldn't imagine a better example of how hard this is to get right than actually what's been going on in our own community. Now, now please, please pay attention carefully, okay? I'm going to risk being misunderstood for the next several minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and take the risk, okay? Is everybody, everybody okay? Don't judge me, all right? All right, I'm going to take the risk. Now, I want you to understand what I'm about to say is not a political statement. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, he's not making a political statement. Everybody do that just so that I'll be a little more comfortable about what I'm about to say, okay? I am not making a political statement. I am going to make a theological statement. Sometimes when politicians start making theological statements, 
the theologians can sound like they're making political statements. But I'm not gonna make a political statement. I'm gonna make a theological statement. Everybody got that? Okay. Have you heard, have you heard that South Bend's mayor is running for president? Mayor Pete. Now, it, this is crazy. People have never knew that there was a South Bend in Indiana are discovering this because they're learning about Mayor Pete. And it's, it's been fascinating to watch the media coverage try to get his name right. You know, don't you feel a little superior to them this week? You're like, I, I know how to pronounce his name. You know, it's like, it's Pete a judge, uh, Buddha judge, Pete Buddha judge, right? Judge, Buddha judge. judge. Don't judge me. But, but Mayor Pete has been out there, and, and they're finding out what a fascinating guy this is. Um, they're finding out how incredibly intelligent the guy is. The guy was a Rhodes Scholar, educated at Harvard and Oxford. He's brilliant. He speaks seven languages. How many of you are still working on English? I'm still working on English. It's like, it's like, I don't know what capacity he has in his head for all this. He's a Navy veteran. He's been to Afghanistan. Um, uh, and, and one of the most interesting things, by, by now you've heard this, is he identifies as an openly gay man. He was married last year uh, by an Episcopal minister in South Bend. And what has people scratching their heads is while he's identified as an openly gay man, He's also identified himself as the most openly Christian man in the race. So, like, Christians are like, I don't know if I have a category for, I don't know what to do with that. Now listen, it is not my job to manage or certainly judge Mayor Pete. My job is to disciple the flock that God's given us here. And so, I know that some of you are like, I don't know what to do with that. So, let me see if I can help. Um, I've really appreciated watching the interviews with him and how articulate he is. He's talked about how when he was a young man, he didn't know what to do with this same-sex attraction that he had. And uh, he, he said, you know, I didn't ask to be gay. I don't want to be gay. He said, if I could have taken a pill that would fixed whatever in me that makes me gay, I would have taken the pill. If I could have had a surgery to cut out whatever it is that makes me gay, I, I would have I had the surgery. And so uh, it's been fascinating to hear how he's wrestled with the decision as to whether what to do with this. And it's, it's really given me a lot of compassion for, for people that struggle with the same-sex attraction. Last week he was at a fundraiser and, um, and Mayor Pete said of his same-sex marriage this statement. He said, it has made me a better man. It has moved me closer to God. If being, a, if being gay was a choice, it was a choice that was made far above my pay grade. And then he brought Mike Pence into the conversation and he said, that's the thing that I wish Mike Pence, the Mike Pence's of the world would understand. That if you have a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me, your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. Apparently, Mayor Pete was feeling judgment from Mike Pence, who's never made a statement about Pete Buttigieg's sexuality. So, so what do we do with this? Here, here, here's what we have. We have one leader who identifies as a Christian with one worldview about marriage and sex 
and a whole host of things, immigration and role of government and abortion. You have another leader who identifies as an openly Christian man who has a completely different worldview. What do you do? You have to exercise good judgment to decide who you will allow to lead you down the path of whatever you think about those things. And it depends on what your worldview is. Now, there was a day when the positions on homosexuality were pretty clear cut. You could either accept what the Bible says as God's position on homosexuality, or you could reject it. But Mayor Pete and some other theologically progressive people have created a third way. And it goes something like this. How I feel about who I am is more authoritative than what God has said about who I am. In other words, if I feel God made me gay, he's okay with it. Now, Mayor Pete is not going to be judged by Mike Pence for sure. We're all going to be judged by Jesus, but we know what the judgment is because he's already spoken on the issue. And just because you feel differently about it doesn't give you the authority to override 3,000 years of accepted biblical interpretation that homosexual activity is sinful and will be judged by God. A couple of weeks ago, Mayor Pete was on Meet the Press and they were asking him questions and one of the questions had to do with evangelical Christians, people like us. And he's, he expressed some frustration about the evangelical community. He was frustrated that so many so-called Christians excused the sexual misconduct of President Trump while essentially judging his sexuality. I don't blame Mayor Pete for being frustrated. I'm frustrated by that. Jesus was frustrated by that. We need to understand, if you are going to make a judgment statement about Mayor Pete's sexuality without making a judgment statement about President Trump's heterosexual sin, you are the kind of hypocrite Jesus is talking about in this passage. I don't know if I'll ever have an opportunity to sit down one-on-one with Mayor Pete. I, that'd be a fascinating conversation for me. I probably should have taken advantage of that when, when he was just Mayor Pete. <laughs> Maybe a little too late to get some access to him now. I don't know if he'd be interested in listening to me anyway. But I would say to him what I would say to anyone struggling with a same-sex attraction, and I am sure there are some people in this room that deal with that issue. Here's what I would say. I am so sorry. I apologize for so many so-called Christians who rarely get the balance right in their communication about their convictions mixed with compassion. We so often side with one or the other. We're either all conviction, no compassion, or all compassion and no conviction. We've got to learn to get that balance right. And then I would say, I don't judge you. That's not my place. You are created in the image of God with value and dignity and worth. 
And you are welcome here at Gospel City, where Jesus is the mayor. Jesus is the mayor of Gospel City. And you are welcome here with all the other sexual sinners, including the pastor and everybody that's sitting here. We're all sexually broken. And we were all born this way. We were all born with an orientation a bent away from God and toward sin. But our orientation and our attraction to sin has never been an excuse to pursue it. And so we understand what Jesus said when he said, if any man would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then Jesus says, if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. So don't let what you feel take authority over what is true. Don't let what you feel become your identity. Find your identity in Christ. I am not your judge. I would like to be your friend. But friends speak truth to one another. And the truth is found in the Bible. And we're all going to be judged by what's in here, not by what we feel. And so we need to understand our different worldviews. And some people haven't had their eyes open to the things that Jesus has said, even in his word. Here's the last thing. Hypocrites can't be surgeons. Look at verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. Jesus had a sense of humor. Don't ever tell me Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. This is an incredibly funny story. Do you see a picture of a guy with a log in his eye? I mean, think about it. Guy walking around with a two by four sticking out of his eye. How many of you have actually had eye surgery? Is there anybody here that's, that's had eye surgery? Lift your hand if you've had eye surgery. And I'm looking around and people have glasses. What didn't go well? What's going on with that either? I had eye surgery back when I was a young man and uh, they told me it wouldn't fix the old man problem. You still have to wear the reading glasses. So that's why I got glasses. But let, let's imagine that you had something stuck in your eye and you needed some eye surgery and I am your eye surgeon. And I walk into the, to the, the surgery room. Hello, I'm Dr. Griffith here to perform your eye surgery. What would you do? Um, if you're a smart person, you would run in horror. I'm not letting that guy touch my eye. Not until he fixes his problem. He can't even see me because he's got this thing stuck in his eye. And that, that Jesus is trying to tell us how ridiculous it is for you to go out and try to fix somebody else if you are not making the priority of getting your own thing fixed. And so understand, this is important, that there is a sequence involved. Now, I want you to notice something. He is not telling us to not care about the specks in other people's eyes. He's telling us you should care so much, you better prioritize getting the log out of your eye so then you can go help others. That's what he says in the last part there in verse 42. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
He wants you to be involved in speck removal. The world needs good spiritual eye surgeons, parents and pastors and small group leaders. But so many of us are disqualified because we refuse to deal with our own stuff. Now listen, when I had my eye surgery, um, they applied a little anesthetic there before they brought out the laser. And yet, do you do that? And before you bring out like the big machinery, you might want to start with just a gentle wash. Just let's see if we can rinse that out without too much pain. If that didn't work, then we have to bring out the big tools. The, the eye surgeon that worked on me, he didn't bring in a cleaver. He had a precision tool. I, I tell you another thing that we do a lot of times is like, yeah, I'm really burdened for my brother. I, he's, he's got this speck in his eye and I've thought about the different ways to get that out. So I found this big rock and I'm going to stand about 25 feet away. And I'm going to throw the rock as hard as I can. And I'm sure if I make contact hard enough with his head, it'll dislodge that speck. So you know what we do? We take our Bibles and we start knocking people over the head to try to get the specks out of their eyes. I'm like, I'm sure it'll fall out if I say it hard enough and long enough. No. Jesus is telling us, if you want to remove somebody else's speck, you got to get close enough. You got to care enough to risk being hurt in the process, but you'll never do it until you first deal with your own stuff. So you say, well, what do I do to get the log out of my own eye? Well, first of all, you need a mirror. This works well as a mirror. You stick your face in this every day, it will reflect back to you logs that need to be removed in your own life. Get a Bible, get a friend. You see, really what I do every week is I throw rocks. It's like I'm up here and I'm just trying to dislodge some specks out of your eye. And what you need is a group of friends that love you enough to get close enough to you to see stuff I can't see from up here. Family small group, that's why we talk about it so much around here, is so that we can have some intimate conversations around things that are blind spots to us. So get a mirror, get a friend, and then get busy. And there are plenty enough logs in our eyes to keep us busy so that we're probably going to have very little left time left over to deal with anybody else's speck. This is what I want to ask you to do. I want you to stand with me right now. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? And who has God brought to mind that you need to forgive? It could be a person that you've been judgmental toward. Who do you need to give and forgive? Do you need to give people some time? Do you need to give people the gospel? Do you need to give people grace? Maybe you need to make a financial investment in order to make your forgiveness tangible. Have you had your eyes opened to the worldview of Jesus? Can you see the way he sees? Are you qualified to lead? Or are you trying to lead somebody in a way you're both going to end up in a ditch? Be careful who you allow to be the thought leaders in your life. And what are the logs 
Is it your own sexual sin, your own failed relationships? Is it your bitterness? Do you really think you're superior to somebody else? All you are is a pardoned criminal before the judge. Some of you may have never understood what it means to be pardoned. It means to have your sin forgiven. It means that one day when you stand before Him in judgment, you will be treated as righteous even though you're not. Have you received that gift of righteousness from Christ? If not, you can open your heart and say, Lord, I'm a criminal. I need to be forgiven. Open my eyes. I want to see as you see. You can pray that from your heart right now. Let us know. We'll get you baptized here in the next couple of weeks. Would you ask God right there to give you the compassion to go along with your convictions? I'm sure that in a room this size, there's people here that have relationships with people that are caught in all kinds of sin. Maybe you haven't known how to have that conversation. Before you try to knock them in the head, why don't you show them how much you care? Then they might be open to listening to what you have to say. Jesus, thank you for being so confrontational with us the logs that prevent us from seeing what you see. Lord, I pray that our church and my own heart would be fueled by compassion to love people as you love people. God, forgive us for the times when we've been so strong and bold without the appropriate love and forgiveness and compassion. Lord, we want to be a church where all kinds of people are welcome to come and hear the good news of the gospel, to hear what you have to say about the way that you've created us, the way you want us to live. And God, I pray that just thousands and thousands and thousands of people would avert a final judgment that would leave them without Christ. And God, would you do that even this weekend? Give us an opportunity to show our love, to go to the hard places, to engage, not to hide in fear, but to love in the confidence that we are loved. We pray it all in Jesus' name.